Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, a series curated by Monocle Solutions, where we balance the books in the dynamic world of finance. I'm your host, Michael Avery, steering you through the ever-shifting story of finance in this series. So whether you're a, a professional working in the banking or insurance space, you're an enthusiast or someone who simply wants to stay informed about the world, you're in the right place. Now, one of the most famous quotes in economics, uh, Robert Lucas, one of the fathers of economic development theory, famously said when speaking at the prestigious Marshall Lecture in 1985, once one starts to think about uh, economic development, it's hard to think about anything else. Indeed, once one realizes how absolutely central economic growth is to progress, it really is impossible to think about anything else in the South African context. The great thing about the world is that in 2023, people everywhere were living long Longer, more well-off, better educated and generally politically more free than in 1923, which was 100 years prior. And one can equally say that about uh, this year as well. But here in South Africa, one gets the feeling that we are going backwards at an alarming rate. GDP per capita has uh, indeed gone backwards in the last 10 years. At local government level, there appears very little money to maintain, fix or build new roads, water pipes, substations that continue tripping because of never-ending load shedding, and the list goes on. And we see economic reforms are grinding slower than rush hour traffic on the M1. Well, my next guest uh, has a unique perspective on South Africa's growth conundrum, having worked inside Treasury and now as CEO of consultancy Crutham's SA division. And he's been working on a book that is about to be published on how we fix South Africa's moribund economy entitled How to Fix, in brackets, un a country. Dr. Roy Harvman, welcome to the podcast. Of course, that quote I used is actually from your new book right in the beginning. And I must say, I love the title and the entire way you brought it together in a very digestible way. But before we get to that, I just want to find out a little bit more about your background. And I see Steli's featuring prominently in your education, BCom Economics in uh, the early 2000s. You graduated with an honors cum laude. You then went to the London School of Economics and you got a master's MSc in economics and returned to Steli's to do your PhD, a doctorate of philosophy and a PhD in economics. What first attracted you to the science of economics? Thank you very much for having me, Michael. I mean, economics is incredibly fascinating. And I think particularly growing up as a kid in the 80s, and I'll never forget, my father had a small company. He was a quantity surveyor and there was a construction collapse. And, you know, the impact on that on the entire economy. And then, of course, 1985 rolled by and I was, you know, I think five years old at the time. And one realized that this country's economy could go in multiple different directions. And you sort of became very keenly aware of how important having a good, strong, growing economy is. And then obviously linked to that in this country, uh, we have huge levels of inequality. And, you know, many people in this country are, are simply without work and, and live very poor lives. And many others have fantastic lives. And, you know, is that right? How can we fix that? You know, how can we make the world better for everyone? Indeed, that seems to be uh, and should be the, the national question and preoccupation and where, sadly, we, we find such divergence across the political spectrum. Uh, but, but certainly those who've studied the science of economics tend to converge and agree around some central principles. And you very ably captured many of those in your book. Uh, before I move on, though, were you ever at Vilkanov, just as an aside, because it seems to be in the news for all the wrong reasons at the moment? What do you think of how the university is dealing with that issue? Yes, I think the university is dealing with the issue correctly. So uh, they're you know, doing a process, they've appointed a panel, 
uh, and they've asked people to submit inputs into the panel and then they will assess what the views of everybody are um, and i think that sometimes what is in the press and what has happened are two different things but uh, i think the university is taking the right approach by having this process it's such an interesting place Deplec was actually you know its nickname and Reading through Rob Rose's Steinheist, uh, I became aware that uh, Marcus Eurster was one of its famous alum, uh, as well as many others in business and in politics, famous constitutional court judges. And uh, so important that our academy does clean out any, well, suspicions of uh, impropriety. Now, your your first job was in Treasury as Deputy Director Macro Forecasting, and that's between November of 2002 and February of 2007, so it coincides with your studies to some extent. Now, what led you into, into government, as it were, at that particular stage, bearing in mind that uh, I think the South African bureaucracy was a, a different beast back then under Trevor Manuel? Yes, well, I mean, Trevor Manuel certainly was one of my heroes. I think what he achieved from about, you know, when he was appointed was extraordinary. I mean, you know, it took the country from being a very closed economy into being a big part of the world. We actually experienced significant economic growth in those years. And I was very, very pleased when, uh, you know, I applied for a job at the Treasury and I went for my interviews and I was very nervous, but uh, I was very happy to get the job. It was a really great experience. I certainly learned an incredible amount in those first few years at the Treasury. I think it's an interesting career path, especially for what many would deem to be a young, privileged, white, male South African at a time when I think the cynical view was that the civil service was being purged and transformed and there wasn't really space for those who had previously seemed to be beneficiaries of apartheid. What did you find? What was your experience? Because I'm saying that's the outside cynical view Inside, what was your experience of working in the civil service as uh, probably a somewhat green and uh, a naive and ambitious and enthusiastic young professional? How was it? Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, I really enjoyed the diversity of it. You know, there were people from all over the country, all different backgrounds and upbringings. Um, you know, I was very honored to be in uh, the same division as Lesetra Kanyako, who was then the head of our division and you know, he grew up in Limpopo and is probably the most outstanding economist I've ever dealt with. Really strong understanding of emerging market economies and of monetary economics. And so those are the sorts of people I learned from. And it was a fantastic experience. One certainly sees that in the cut and thrust between journalists and uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank after the MPC meetings. Uh, I do think, as an aside, that it might help if we see the minutes of the deliberations published, and not necessarily with each governor or, or member of the MPC's names attached to whichever vote happened, but just to give us a greater insight, much like they do with the minutes of the Federal Open Market Committee. Do you think that would help? Yes, I mean, there's a lot of debate about this. I mean, there's a big international literature on central bank communication. And, you know, as you correctly point out, some countries have very detailed minutes. Some countries do what we do, which is to publish a summary of the, the meeting at the end. It's, you know, whichever works best. Where when In our system, I think it's quite good that we don't get stuck on this idea of who the hawks are and who the doves are. You know, I don't think the people on the MPC are, are particularly ideologically 
um, focused and I know many of them quite well. I don't find them ideologically hawks or ideologically doves. I think they're all very independently minded people and they certainly follow the data and they make decisions on what they see in front of them. And so I think our system does work in the sense of giving a sense of, of, of what the thoughts are in the MPC. And then the other innovation that we have, which is, a, is an extensive process after every single MPC meeting. So there is a, a session with economists the following day. And, you know, you can ask anything and you can ask all the different members what their views are on something. And I think that does give a sense to the market of how the MPC has come to its decision. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all in aid of transparency and openness. And I think we rank, we're, we're very fortunate. And you, you speak in your book about institutional strength to have such a sound and strong uh, an independent reserve bank. And we saw that with the budget and the ability to dip into that GFECRA account, which we'll come to, but that wouldn't have been possible without such a strong institution. I want to come back to your career. You then decided to leave in, was it around 2007, to do some management consultant work with Deloitte, and you were part of a, a CEO bootcamp program and also a consultant to various large private and public sector clients, many SOEs, in fact, ESCOM, Sanro, Transnet, Sassel. So, so you've worked closely in advising state-owned enterprises. And in your book, you write about the lessons we can learn from China here and Deng Xiaoping in reforming SOEs. So from that vantage point, what is it about our SOEs that sees them as such miserable failures? Let's be frank, in 2024, they've been mismanaged. They've run out of balance sheet to be able to really fulfill their mandates. Is it governance? Is it too much interference by the shareholder in the work of the board? Is it a maybe a more a muddled mandate between profit and social development? Is it just plain old corruption? What do you see as the primary issues? And more importantly, how do we fix them? Yes, I mean, I think you put your finger on something that I find incredibly interesting in the research for my book, which is to look at what every other country has done. And it's really, in a way, just almost a technological reason why countries have large state-owned enterprises. So if you look at electricity, for example, it just was so that in the early part of when electricity was uh, sort of first invented by Thomas Edison, well, not invented by Thomas Edison, but when the, the system of distribution sort of came into being, that as technology developed, it made more and more sense to centralize the supply of electricity in a single entity and then to distribute it across the country from the single entity. It was just purely the economics of electricity at the time, which was very heavily coal-based. Technology has moved on significantly since then, and now it just makes more sense that electricity can be produced even in your own home. You can have a solar panel on your roof and you can go off-grid, or you can have smaller plants in different parts of the country. So uh, one of the examples I use is that uh, you know, increasingly the supply of electricity will probably come from the Northern Cape because it has more sun and more wind. This is just the march of time in a way, sort of the march of history as things have changed and technology develops and how we understand regulation develops. And every single country has had to go through a very painful process of moving away from a system that might have worked in the 50s and 60s to a new system. And I think that's what we need to do as a country is we just need to sort of move with how the rest of the world has moved and move to SOEs that are uh, not single monopolies, but are actually uh, unbundled and uh, focus on their core strengths. And that's sort of exactly what China has done. Uh, very interestingly, they, for example, have split up their grid company into a northern grid and a southern grid. They've allowed for private sector generation. But that doesn't mean that the state has disappeared entirely. What has happened is that they've rethought the role of the state within the context of SOEs. 
And I know Deng thought that political interference in state-owned enterprises would make it more difficult to develop China. So that was also a key plank or pillar, was hiring the best and the brightest and then letting the boards do what they do best as uh, as mandarins. Um, whereas here in South Africa, we could probably say we've had far too much political interference. You know, I think politicians have different incentives to, to management, for example, and that's perfectly understandable. You know, politicians might want an answer quickly. They might want the lights to go on immediately, whereas technically that might not be possible. And so I think it's it's quite important to build a strong bureaucracy and a, and a strong enterprise that can think about these things over a longer period of time, rather than politicians who are often looking at the next election. And this is certainly something that is around the world. You know, you can look in almost every single country that you have these different time horizon problems. And and how you deal with that is you create enterprises that have strong boards, independent boards, and strong, well-run teams to run them. Yeah. And uh, again, it comes down to strong, independent boards being the right people for the job and, and not there because of patronage or any kind of political favor. And I, I understand the political realities of things like cadre deployment. I think all political parties do it, for example. Uh, but I think there has been a blurring of the line, sadly, in South Africa, certainly under the state capture years where individuals were parachuted into boards for other purposes in terms of repurposing what that state-owned enterprises was ultimately there to do. We'll come back to the issue and how it relates to growth. And it's obviously the most important problem for South Africa to solve today, Roy. But then you, you rejoined Treasury in 2009 as a director in financial markets and competitiveness. So you were working on things like financial services policy and for policy wonks it's really fascinating stuff but if you look at the reform period that you worked in we're working in a a very exciting period for how one regulates financial markets it was just post the global financial crisis and South Africa actually held up relatively well post the global financial crisis our our banks certainly What, what do you recall of that time in your career and how it shaped your view of our banking system and regulation and risk Yes. So I I was trained as almost everybody was, you know, pre-global financial crisis into a particular way of thinking about how the financial services sector and the real economy work together. I guess made famous by Alan Greenspan's idea that you should leave the markets to sort of look after themselves. The global financial crisis really made us rethink such a lot about economics. Uh, It was a very exciting time. There were papers coming out from the IMF and all the big economists about how we need to rethink about how we think about the world post-global financial crisis. So very excitingly, I was offered an opportunity to go and work with the Treasury on these issues. And uh, I took it and I really enjoyed it. We did quite a lot of great reforms, introduced Basel III to further improve the quality of the regulation of the financial system, innovations in financial markets and other reforms, particularly Twin Peaks, to reorganizing how our regulators think. And that was a very exciting time. And we were very fortunate. And I think we forget sometimes how well we came through the crisis as a country. Yeah. Just highlighting, I think, in many ways that we do have strong institutions, uh, which we still do have. Many of our institutions are still strong, particularly, for example, the regulators or the Reserve Bank. And that, that, that Twin Peaks model was obviously just about making the financial sector safer and, and more effective and uh, having the prudential authority and then the market conduct authority. And what we saw through that was a restructuring of the financial services board into the FSCA 
And if you look at outcomes, I mean, you've got the benefit of hindsight now, Roy. How effective would you say that process has been in delivering on that mandate? Yes, well, I think the core thing really is, and it also comes kind of back to SOEs in a strange way, uh, is the accountability question. So the question is always, you know, when you create an institution, what are you holding them accountable for? You know, what is their number one thing that they must worry about? And one of the lessons from the global financial crisis is that we created financial regulators had very mixed mandates. Uh, There was a great piece of work on what happened in England, in the United Kingdom, about how the Financial Conduct Authority got a little bit confused between its market conduct mandate and its safety and soundness mandate or its prudential mandate. And so it allowed things to happen, which in retrospect seemed bizarre. For example, Northern Rock was allowed to run down its capital, for example. There wasn't a strong oversight of its safety and soundness. And coming out of that, the view was that what you need to do is you need to understand that these are two competing objectives and you need to give the responsibility for one of the objectives to one entity and the responsibility for the other objectives to another entity. And that is very simply conceptually the idea behind Twin Peaks. And I think it has worked out quite well for us. I think it's really allowed uh, the FSCA to rethink what it does and to become more focused. And it's really been great to see. I mean, I I know the leadership there very well, and I think they're doing an excellent job of building an institution that will, you know, look out for the interests of customers. And then, of course, the the Prudential Authority has a long history of, of excellent work. I just want to get your views on exchange controls. And obviously, they served us well to insulate us to some extent from from the global financial crisis. We did see in the most recent budget a further relaxation of exchange controls. The authorized dealers now have had the cap raised, what is it, from 1 billion to 5 billion for high growth startups uh, before they've got to approach the Saab for authorization. But I just think that, you know, exchange controls are so anachronistic. And if you look at it, it's more potentially beneficial for the banks who, as authorized dealers, get to quiz the entrepreneurs and acquire all of that IP for nothing. And sadly, I think banks often kick dust about financial stability and protection of their domestic capital base. But I think it's something of a smokescreen. And uh, in exchange, South Africa loses capital formation in many forms as a result of our high growth scale ups having to base themselves offshore to raise capital. Isn't it time just to do away with exchange controls? Well, the Treasury did a a great thing in this budget is they flagged that they want to move forward along uh, the path of joining uh, international best practice on exchange controls. Uh, There's a committee at the OECD that looks at what they call the liberalization of capital controls, essentially. And it's a global forum for countries to institute what is international best practice in capital controls. Because really one of the things we learned from the global financial crisis is that just getting rid of you know all capital controls is not the answer necessarily um, particularly for an emerging market one of the big risks that you have is companies just simply picking themselves up and moving to a low tax jurisdiction you need checks and balances to make sure that that doesn't happen and then you also need checks and balances to deal with you know unexpected inflows of capital which can have very bad effects on the exchange rate and and manufacturing so it was great that the treasury has flagged that they actually want to walk this path that other countries have walked and institute a system that is actually international best practice so i think that is the direction to go in Mm. Oddly enough, maybe if you'd asked me this question before the global financial crisis, I would have said just get rid of all exchange controls. 
but today I think it, it is it is more complicated than that, and I think it's good that we're moving in that direction to move to an internationally accepted approach to to this. Yeah, and I suppose that you know the lessons in opening up too quickly were there for all to see in the early '90s, and what happened to our textile manufacturing sector when we were flooded and just were not able to compete. We just weren't ready as an economy just to throw down the drawbridge and invite everyone in. You then, most recently, before being appointed as CEO of, of Crutham SA, which was formerly Intellidex and has rebranded, you were Deputy Director General in the Western Cape Government for a period of almost three years here. You helped in preparation of the Western Cape budget. And I think one of the highlights here, certainly one that stands out for me, and I'm interested to find out more about how you made it work, was successful approval of the Tigerberg public-private partnership. And I think we talk a lot in South Africa about how we unlock public-private partnerships for key infrastructure, given the balance sheet constraints of our SOEs and of the fiscus. So what are the lessons that we can draw on from this in trying to build out other PPPs in South Africa? Yes. I mean, I think the other thing that the Treasury did, which they've been flagging for a while, and it's really great that they've done it, is reform of the PPP framework. And so I think one must move away from the idea that the state must provide everything. And one must also move away from the idea that the private sector is the answer to everything. You know, I think particularly in a country with very high levels of inequality, the private sector is not necessarily always the answer. We see it, for example, in schooling. It's very easy for rich kids to go to great schools, go to private schools. But there are answers somewhere in between, between government and and the private sector. And, you know, there are models, uh, which I actually discuss in my book internationally, about where we have found ways for the private sector to be supported by government. So in a mixed PPP type model to roll out things like education and even some cases like healthcare. And so, yes, I I think PPPs are are a great innovation, and I'm really glad that we were able to push forward on on that particular one. In that case, the idea is that the private sector can build the hospital, and then it will be operated by the government, and then there will be a fee paid by the government to the private sector for the use of the hospital. A similar model, you know, that has been used actually in Limpopo, and a really nice way of thinking about how the private sector and the public sector can sort of work together in their own mutual benefit. Yeah, and uh, the the Langer School, while you know some might debate it, I think has been quite successful as a as a model that you mentioned in the book around education, which uh, we'll definitely come to because you know education is another one of those crucial ingredients if you want to bake this fantastic uh, economic growth cake. It's absolutely key we get that right. And then you decided to join. Crutham, as I said, formerly Intellidex, um, a big fan of the work that the consultancy does and often have your colleagues Stuart Theobald and uh, Peter Otabontalto on the show. Uh, what, what drew you to Crutham? Because they really have uh, developed a reputation and have a sense of mission around how we work collectively to grow South Africa, uh, specifically around the just energy transition. What drew you to Crutham? I think you've answered the question. <laughs> was well, exactly those things, yes. I mean, it's been great. Uh, I really enjoy working in a sort of a much slightly more independent way on, on very interesting topics. You know, so we've worked on great stuff around the just energy transition, around climate issues, which I think are very topical at the moment. And I've yeah, I've had a really great time so far. As you say, I think a, a mission to work out how financial markets can be used to make the world a better place. 
And that really leads us into the book. And I, I said to you before we scheduled this recording that after reading it, the highest compliment I could pay you is that it is written in such a way, and often these things can be written from an academic perspective. They sit in an ivory tower and they don't connect with an audience. And you've managed to distill what can be some quite dense and complex area of policy and economics and public administration to something that's quite easily digestible, you know, kind of keep it simple, stupid, because it's the economy, stupid kind of thing. But you've stripped it into six E's, ESCOM, education, environment, exports, equality, and then ethics and effective government. And with these, you've put forward a blueprint for economic growth. Just take me through your ideas here and how important the study of China was in terms of bringing all of this together? Because I see you spent some time in China studying that particular model. You know, China kind of influences a huge amount of the book, partly because I think in some ways we hold up a model of a, particularly in some ideological camps in this country, hold up a model of, of a China that no longer exists. China is today a reasonably modern state. It has really thought hard about how the private sector and the public sector work together. And, you know, it's not an obvious point to make, but it is an incredible success from an economic perspective. You can have discussions about other aspects of China, particularly its human rights record. But economically, millions of people have been lifted out of poverty in China. It's almost unimaginable to think what China was like 50 or 100 years ago compared to the China that we see today. And I think that it really is a model for us to look at. Mm. And I think it's quite important also to look at it as a model because we often look West for inspiration when we actually should look to other countries that are more like ourselves, that come with histories more like our own history. I think we often are quite obsessed with sort of a, a model of economic development that doesn't necessarily fit our history. And also so, when it yeah. comes to the political economy, because, you know, this is also about persuading the hearts and minds of key decision makers. It does seem that at senior leadership, there is a, a desire to be more eastward focused and facing with BRICS and BRICS plus. And I don't want to get bogged down in our politics of non-alignment, but it does seem to be a very effective tool and a persuasive rhetorical tool to say there are examples in our, our sphere of admiration that we can look up to. Yes, and I, and I think that is also quite an important part of the story is that there is a reason why people do want to look east. And it's not necessarily always political, it is often economic, which is that you only have to look at the Asian countries to see how successful they've been. You only have to look at certain South American countries to see how successful some South American countries have been. You know, I used the example of Colombia, which used to be drug riddled and violent and is now less drug riddled and less violent and, and more successful than it was before. Mm, yeah. Similarly, I think you should also look at Argentina, which I don't actually get around to talking about in the book, but also an example of, of maybe what we shouldn't do, um, which is often better lesson than what we should do. Yeah, that is, awesome. <laughs> yeah, any, any good entrepreneur will tell you some of the best lessons were learned in doing what they shouldn't do and failing and then realizing what they should do afterwards. So um, I agree with you on that, Roy. Uh, at the heart of China's success is this concept of comparative advantage, this idea that countries shouldn't try and do everything. And, I mean, it's an important point, 
because I get the sense that in South Africa, certainly from a policy perspective, sometimes we put the policy cart before the economic growth horse. And if, if you'll allow me to explain, it's that we want to drive transformation, socioeconomic goals, which are laudable, you know, reduce inequality, all of this through policy. But often it's the economic growth uh, horse that's going to drive that cart, not the other way around. Yes. I mean, many, many years ago, I went to a lecture by, I think uh, it was Derek Keyes, um, who was then finance minister. Um, and he said, you can only achieve in the short run, economically, what is politically possible. And you can only achieve in the long run, politically, what is economically possible. Mm. Essentially saying that you have to sometimes think about the long term growth prospects, as I interpreted it of the country and think about how you get the economy to function, which is often not politically in the short run, the best answer, because it will come to bite you in the long run when the, when the economy isn't functioning. And so you often have to take difficult decisions. And one of them is this idea of comparative advantage, particularly for small economies. You know, we often think, no, we need to keep the economy closed. Uh, we need to have tariff barriers and we need to protect workers from change, but you can only do that for so long. And the costs that that comes with can often have very big distortionary impacts on other parts of the economy. And, and you may be shooting yourself in the foot policy-wise. And we know from a policy perspective what we've seen through, uh, and if you look at the IRP, for example, which has been stuttered and sputtered out and is, it's now been extended again, because, I mean, policies are ideally based on, on governance processes, balancing a number of well-researched, evidence-based analytically sound policy briefs from multiple experts and stakeholders. And one gets the sense that we don't really have that in South Africa anymore, both policy research that makes it into government policy processes and, and policy processes have largely become almost parodies of the real thing. And the results of the research is selected from the start on a desired end game or conclusion especially by the gatekeepers, and it often excludes the dissidents or those that don't concur with that conclusion. And I think government largely can't, because it's become too uh, clouded or, or decapacitated, assess policy research and uh, ultimately is then beholden to various lobby groups that steer policy in a particular direction. I know Operation Vulundlele is trying hard to push back against this, uh, how successful, and I know you've worked closely with OV, has it been and how much work still needs to be done to ensure that we move our policy back into what it should be, evidence-based, analytically sound? Uh, oddly enough, I do think that there's still strong policy research capacity. I think that, you know, for example, the work coming out of the presidency at the moment is, is excellent. The thoughts there are, are excellent. You know, the ideas about how we move forward, for example, on really big issues, for example, on uh, the energy transition on the grid and you know, all of that stuff is excellent. But I would agree with you that it's something missing. And that's almost at the end, which is once you've got this idea, how do you turn that idea into something? Uh, it's almost the capability of the state or the ability to do things of the state. And, you know, it's the old cliche about this country is that we're very bad at implementing, which I think is very true. So I don't think the state lacks the ability to come up with good policies or good ideas. I think the state lacks the ability to implement them. And, you know, around the world, there have been a variety of different models tried because it's not, we're not the first country that has faced this problem. And in, in most countries, the, the idea is to actually have a small team that really just gets things done. 
and has a very limited list of things that they need to achieve. Very much the absolute, absolute blockages in the economy. You know, it's very tempting to give the bureaucracy, you know, 110 different priorities. And then you have to go through a process of prioritizing your priorities. You know, it's actually what you need to do is you need to say, these are the very, very limited list of things you need to achieve. And please just do those. If you can just get those right, <laughs> yeah, we'll all be better off. And I think Operation Wiggler has made some great progress. Simple things like lifting the own generation cap for electricity, you know, has allowed companies to generate their own electricity. Of course, it should have been done earlier than, than it was done, but it's been done. <laughs> yeah, and, and we just wish that it was doing something similar with uh, with Transnet. I know it is working now and focusing on Transnet, and we've got third-party access uh, that is now uh, in this version 2.0, which was tried and failed because of the terms. That we know what happened there, but hopefully that'll come on stream this year. And and that is very important to support the one key E of, of your book, and that's exports. Uh, because when it comes to exports, there are a couple of things. We're not naturally good at things that absorb large numbers of the unemployed, but we also need, when we find the things we are good at, to be able to export those uh, products to other markets. And we can't do that currently because our ports don't work. Exactly. So, I mean, once again, I'm, I feel a bit like a stuck record. China has really really moved forward around things like port concessioning, which is the idea that, you know, what you do is uh, allow the private sector to operate. A, it does not even need to be the whole port. It can be, you know, one of the keys or uh, or something like that, but bringing in the private sector to operate key parts of the system. And that's really the direction we have been moving in from our own ports perspective, but again, incredibly slow. And, you know, things have worked and then stopped working and then the concessioning moves ahead and then the concessioning falls apart. But I really think we need now just to grab the opportunity and press ahead with it. I think it'll make a huge difference. Um, you know, I use the example of Shanghai, which uh, introduced port concessioning and throughput through that port has just exploded. The, the benefits are, are really obvious. So it is just, again, about speed and execution. W when it comes to ESCOM, and I think this is an area, uh, to your point, where we've seen some really positive reform and we've seen the power of that reform come through in the number of megawatts added on, on rooftops, be they residential, be they commercial, be they um, new IPPs serving uh, industrial or end users. We see an energy trading market starting to own up. Uh, or open up. Uh, Growth Point recently announced the Atana deal. We're starting to make progress on wheeling, but the big constraint and the worry for me is is the grid. And and when it comes to ESCOM, we know that it's flagged this as as a major risk by spinning out a transmission company. We can ensure that the different parts of the system focus on what they do best, as you say, generation, transmission, and distribution. But the, there is a debate about how to crowd in the private sector. With some arguing for a REAP type model, with others arguing for more the transmission company or the state to remain more firmly in control. How do you see it, given it is a public good, you you only want or need one set of power lines, but we need to be able to build this and, and crowd in capital and skills uh, and do it urgently? I think that you raise a very subtle point, which is that, and this sort of goes to that the point that, you know, you mustn't always think that privatization is the answer to everything. The grid is, like you say, a public good. It's a natural monopoly. It's not clear that we want to hand it over to a company that might just, you know, jack up the prices and not allow the use of the grid. Uh, we all know from economics that monopolies have really bad outcomes. So what you need to do is you need to create a very high, highly regulated approach 
to liberalization in the sector, often driven by the the state itself. So, you know, for them to procure pieces of the grid and to allow, for example, the private sector to build the grid and to be compensated for the capital costs of that over a period of time, and then to have a fee for that. Uh, this is sort of how it's happened uh, internationally, and uh, the Treasury highlighted in the budget speech that this is the direction that this country is going in. But it is a little bit more complicated than the REAPs, because in the REAPs, you can just sort of let the private sector build as much as possible and hope for the best. Yeah. But because it's a public good, you have to just be a little bit more awake, and you need to think very strongly from a regulatory perspective how it's going to be achieved. And are there other challenges? I mean, you're building across vast distances, servitudes, public-private land, um, negotiating with landowners, all all of that kind of thing. But it's a a welcome debate that we're at least now having out on the open. I see Enos Bunda in the business day today with a very interesting Q&A on his thoughts, former ESCOM CEO, with a company that's now working in that space as well. There's so many other incredible things in the book, and we can go on and on. I mean, from theories around, you know, how we effectively grow when we've got an unlimited supply of labor and there's a big debate and and maybe just in in terms of the book i want to end off on this from the book before i get your thoughts just lastly on the budget but the years that you were working under trevor manuel in the treasury those those years from 2000 to 2006 7 we saw phenomenal growth in south africa and unemployment was below 20% at one stage. But there was still this idea that it was jobless growth. And I don't know how accurate that is, given where our unemployment rate is now, but there you are. But you look at Nobel Prize winning economist W. Arthur Lewis, and he's really regarded as the creator of the modern field of development economics, hailing from St. Lucia. What, what does Lewis offer up as a solution if you want to deliver economic development when there's an almost unlimited supply of, of cheap labor? Yes, and it goes to that point I was making earlier that, you know, we sometimes look to models of economic growth that maybe are not necessarily appropriate in an emerging market context. And so I think what Lewis really offers is, you know, he's actually the first major development economist that actually comes from a developing country. And, you know, uh, famously the first black professor at Princeton and the first black person to win the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. And it really, I think, puts its finger on the fact that when you have a huge amount of labor, you really need to think about how you get the economy to grow for a period of time. And then you get to this thing called the Lewis turning point, which is when things start to work properly and um, labor starts to get paid its marginal price of labor. Up until then, you may have very low levels of wages and you sort of have to develop the economy understanding this. And that often comes with inequality and it can be politically quite difficult. And I do often think that this really has been the case in South Africa, that we haven't quite got to the point where the economy is growing fast enough to support very high levels of wages. Mm-hmm. And that's something politically we just need to think through. You know, Is it appropriate that we have rising high levels of wages, um, that we have collective bargaining, for example, et cetera, et cetera, in a country with very high levels of unemployment? Yeah, the difficulty, and I I couldn't agree with you more, the difficulty from where we find ourselves today is the genie's out the bottle with the national minimum wage. I I can't see politically how one would put that back in the bottle. And what would you suggest as an alternative to collective bargaining? Would it devolve down to firm level? Would you have it rather at a compulsory sector-wide level, given the fractious natures of our labor relations? It's a very difficult one to solve. 
Yes, I mean, obviously, the extension of collective bargaining agreements to to smaller firms has been, you know, has been disastrous in many cases. Both workers and the firms themselves don't want those high wages because they understand the consequences of that, which is that the firm often needs to close. So I do think you need some more flexibility. You really need to think through that: is this wage appropriate for the area that the firm is operating in? And you know, is a system of collective bargaining in the modern economy? really what we need. I mean, it might, might well be that what you do is you have a floor. So the national minimum wage could be the floor for wages. And then you must allow firms to negotiate with workers individually from there onwards. That's obviously a huge difference from where we are at the moment. But I really do think we need to think about this uh, in the context of high unemployment. And how do we get to a point where people can find work and people want yeah. to build businesses that grow? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I mean, it's inextricably interlinked with with inequality. You know, we we speak and we focus on on inequality and we talk about poverty, but ultimately it's about getting more people employed. And then you you really are tackling inequality in a major way. And from there, then you can start looking at other interventions. But right now, it's just the the basics. And also, we we can't underplay the a societal effects of giving an individual a job and purpose and dignity and hope at at whatever wage that is and and the reason to get up every morning uh, you know all of those uh, kind of more softer issues just lastly because i've already taken far too much of your time roy thank you um what what was your overall impression of the balancing act of the recent budget raiding the g freaker account for uh, 150 billion over the over the next few years certainly helped things look a little better i suppose there is a concern here that it's a bit of a slippery slope but uh, Treasury has said that this is going to pay down debt. It's not for current expenditure. What did you make of um, the Balancing Act achieved? Yes, well, I think Trafecra is, if you think about your own household finances, not to oversimplify it, but Trafecra is sort of the money that you have as savings. It's a limited amount. It's only $500 billion, which sounds like a lot, but if you think that the Treasury borrows anywhere between 400 and 600 billion every single year mm. um it's actually you know only one year's worth of borrowing and, and that's sort of the sort of way that you must think about it is a sort of one year's worth of borrowing so you can use it once off to reduce debt perhaps you know there are some big redemptions coming due so you must be very very awake about how you use it uh, you really mustn't start dipping into it for consumption expenditure and um, that temptation always exists, particularly in an election year. And I think the Treasury's managed to avoid that. It's still early days. Um, I, I still am a little bit worried about, you know, opening up this box of savings because we might spend it and then find out in three years' time that there's nothing left and then we still need something. Yeah. But it's, it seems to me that they've tried really hard to make sure that it's used for paying down debt. I almost liken it to the two-pot system that we're going to introduce in yeah. in, our, in pension reform and saying, well, you've got that savings pot. It's there for an emergency. You can dip into it. But ultimately, this is your time and savings at the end of the day. It's kind of a rainy day fund. You don't want to be doing that. Uh, and so uh, I guess that's where the market is going to be keeping a very, very beady eye. Thank you very much, Roy. We're going to have to leave it there. Author of a soon-to-be-published book, How We Fix South Africa's Moribund Economy, entitled How to Fix and un a Country. I love the title. Roy, when is it going to be available, by the way? I had the pleasure of having a, a, pre, a preview of the book and a pre-read. When is it hitting the shelves? It'll be on shelves on the 2nd of May. 
Fantastic. Well, that wraps up this week's uh, episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast with the CEO of consultancy, Crutham, and its SA division. Roy Haverman has been, uh, well, all through South Africa's uh, public sector now consulting in the private sector and really passionate about uh, how we fix South Africa's economy. Great pleasure having him on the podcast. Before we go, I'd like to extend our gratitude to our growing audience for tuning in. Please remember to share the content and remember that you can find us on all good podcast platforms. Uh, Until next time, don't forget to subscribe.